listen to them. Children of the night, what music they make. Episode 21 ah, 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 of The Fear of God. I am special guest host, Dracula. Actually, I'm not. My name is uh, Reed Lackey, and <laughs> you'll forgive me for uh, my, silly little, uh, my silly little introduction. I am here not by myself, um, but also with my uh, faithful companion and uh, ever-present co-host, Mr. Nathan Rouse. Nathan, how are you? Hello, Reed. I, I got to I gotta hand it to you. You know, I do like to have a little fun with introducing you, but <laughs> I think you topped. All I was going to say was that you had to go see a guy at a castle about some business. <laughs> I think yours is uh, oh. yours is better than I would have conjured there. So <laughs> good work. Although I don't know if you're I don't know if you're channeling Dracula or um, the Count from Sesame Street. But um, see, that was know, either way. Either way, it works exactly, and that was kind of intentional. Yeah. So, listeners, we are we are here having a conversation as we do every week about the intersection between Christianity and the horror genre. Uh, we did a listener survey back in uh, November of last year. And you, the listeners, had a couple of options to decide between if we were going to do a series on, say, sequels or you know, top 50 horror films or uh, hammer horror films. Quite a few people voted for a variety of different series, but by a handful of votes, you guys selected for us to have a series about the universal monster movies, the classic, iconic films from the 30s and 40s and one or two from the 50s about Dracula and Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman and the Invisible Man, etc., etc. So we are beginning that series today. What we're going to do is take a bit of a cue from our parental podcast, More Than One Lesson, and we didn't want to just bombard your feed with seven or eight episodes in a row of movies that were almost 80 years old. So what we're doing instead is we're going to do one classic film per month, and each of those films is going to have a companion film. More Than One Lesson typically has a newer film that they talk about, and then they companion it with an older film. We're going to be doing something slightly opposite from that. We're going to be taking one of these older films and then pairing it up with something that's a bit more recent. So every month you will get a classic Universal monster movie, and it will be followed by a film that is more recent and is uh, thematically similar uh, or give us some different 
ways to approach some of the same topics. So before we get into today's film, uh, Nathan, how you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good, man. Um, I gotta admit, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this series. So personally, I have never at all, like it not, it's not even like, uh, you watched Gremlins 30 years ago and now you're refreshing yourself on it. Like I've never seen any of these universal monster movies. Mm. So it will be sort of exciting to see these throughout the year, just kind of expose myself to some of that material. I am curious from you, like, do you know, like, uh, historically, I know nothing about the context in which these were made. Was it, you know, universal at the time? They just said, let's, let's adapt these classic monsters to film. And that's about the sum of it. Or was it a bit more, was there more to it than that? Well, you know? from what my, from what I understand, Universal definitely wanted to capitalize on what they figured would be a financially vibrant market, which was the horror genre. I mean, horror stories are as old as, films and storytelling itself. So there were definitely films in the, uh, even as early as the late 1800s when film itself was still in its, you know, infancy that were themed in horror storytelling. But Universal, particularly in the late 20s, saw an opportunity for them to capitalize on a lot of these, these classic pieces of literature and basically create what I consider to be the first uh, horror franchises. I mean, horrors are known for their sequel after sequel after sequel. These films all have multiple sequels. Um, every single one of these sort of legacy beginning films have at least three or four sequels that go with it. And Universal just saw an opportunity to, uh, basically tap into that market. And they are credited, if I'm not mistaken, with being the first major studio to do that, to capitalize on the horror genre as a franchise market, as a, dare I say it, shared universe, which is something we will get into with some of our later installments. But further on down the line, it wasn't merely Dracula or a Frankenstein's monster or a Wolfman. It, they would appear, uh, you know, multiple ones of them would appear in a different film. You know, you get Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and you get uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which features Dracula, Frankenstein and the Wolfman. So wow. you, you, so you have this sort of uh, model that is now, you know, 80 something years old. I think in the cultural phenomenon, shared universes are treated as something of a new thing. It's something that they're doing. Uh, a bit on the recent spectrum, but yeah, Universal was doing it in the 30s and 40s and uh, having having the same degree of hit or miss with it, shall we say. But yeah, I, I think in general, Universal was just wanting to tap into what they knew would be a viable market. And turns out they were right because they created some of our most iconic, legendary figures in the horror genre. Um, and I think it's a, a remarkable feat that they were able to do that. Well, I presume, you know, I mean, you've probably seen there's stirrings or actually plans in place to re, re, re jumpstart or jumpstart again or relaunch or however you want to say it. Um, a new universal monsters shared universe film franchise. And, and I, it's easy to be cynical about this stuff sometimes. And, and, you know, especially as you've alluded to, like think that we in our thirties are the only ones witnessing the things to be most cynical about, or, you know, like the, the shared universe <laughs> right. idea is a new one. And so, so contextually, you know, like you just referenced the Abbott and Costello piece, 
is it meant to be like, like for instance, we're, we're talking about the Bela Lugosi Dracula here. Is it meant to be that Dracula who shows up in, you know what I mean? Like and, and it is the yeah. shared universe to take that literally is they're all in a sort of continuity with each other, you know, as opposed right. to just uh, a loose connection. So in, in these universal monster threads, they're all sort of in sharing a world. Yes. And it is sp- supposed to be, uh, for the most part, it's supposed to be that same individual. So like, for instance, sure, sure. I referenced Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Bella Lugosi reprises his role as Count Dracula in that film. So it is by all intentions, although logically it doesn't quite add up that it would be the same Dracula <laughs> because, <laughs> because of his fate in this film. But, um, but yeah, by all intents and purposes, it is supposed to be the Count Dracula that we see in the film we're talking about today. Um, there's no indication except in a couple of instances with some of the sequels where it's focusing on a different character who's having the same problem, particularly when it comes to like the Invisible Man or the Wolfman. You'll see some of that happen where it's the similar horror element, but with a different named character. That sometimes happens, um, but particularly when it comes to Dracula, like that is, uh, it's supposed to be the count. That's, that's, that's what it cool. is. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you, I mean, before we dive too head first into the movie itself, like, do you have a, you know, favorite vampire story, you know, movies, books, what have you? I do. In fact, uh, so, so my, my somehow, favorite. Somehow I knew that'd be your answer to this question. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, yes. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I do. So, uh, my favorite straightforward vampire story, it, it might be surprising to some of our listeners because it's a little. Twilight? It's a little Twilight. silly. I, Twilight, right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to shut this podcast down <laughs> if you mention that awful, <laughs> awful word again. Um, no, just kidding. But, uh, what I will say is, my favorite vampire movie is a film from 1985 called Fright Night. Mm. And the reason that might strike some of my listeners as... With Colin Farrell, right? That is the new one. <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. I really, I really don't like you. So, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, no, the, uh, the 1985 one, um, is just this great mix of, uh, humor and horror that I really respond to very strongly. It, it's a movie that I think holds up very well. The monsters in it are pretty frightening. Um, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's got some heavy themes. I would not be surprised when deeper into the year, if we tackle, which, you know, is kind of the plan, if we tackle one of the sequels to the Dracula movies and do a, a second vampire film, uh, I might push for Fright Night to be our companion film because there's a lot to talk about in that movie and that is hands down uh, my favorite straightforward vampire story although i do have several that i'm fond of i'll wait to hear yours just in case i don't uh, so that i don't spoil one but um but yeah fright night would get the top spot for me that's cool i i would i would welcome that as a as a talking as a podcast coverage because i've I'm not i did see the remake and uh, you know it, it meant nothing to i me, didn't but I, I, I haven't yeah. seen the original so would be welcome to doing that uh i've got i've got two answers neither of the movies one i i, I was kind of trolling my brain for other vampire stories i've seen and and unlike you know, like if you were to say, what's your favorite zombie story or that, like, I'm, I'm pretty immediate with like the 28 days later. I love, I love that movie. Um, I don't, I don't have like 
a, a vampire movie that just jumps out at me that's that's a coming to me immediately. But one would be um, in terms of stories, just Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Um, very strong. Oh, yes. <clears throat> I think very highly of that. Um, got really freaked out one night reading it. I mean, I, just, I only read it about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Um, so it, it does its work well. But another one, and I actually referenced this on Facebook, like probably no one on listening to our podcast has seen this, but I, I've alluded a number of times on the podcast to my theater work and a couple of years ago produced a locally written play called Dracula Bites that is just hysterical, got to be in it with some some good theater peers. And and but the premise of the play is this hoity toity New York producer has written his ultimate version of Dracula for the stage, you know, adapting the Stoker material. And this little bumpkin town their community theater wants to produce it and so he comes to this town to produce this stage version of dracula and it's just this it's high comedy it's hysterical it's lots of wordplay and physical gags and stuff so we we had a ton of fun with it it is difficult uh, bella lugosi's movie dracula had an uphill battle with me because having never seen it, all I could think of was all the bits and gags and stuff from our play. So it was, it was difficult to separate myself from that, but I would easily identify that as, you know, kind of my favorite experience with the vampire storytelling. That's a, that's awesome. And I was, uh, you know, in my answer, which is not about to change, but, uh, you know, I was concentrating exclusively on movies. Uh, definitely if we were branching out into literature, which I'm glad you did, uh, I would also echo Salem's Lot as a brilliant vampire story. Very scary, very effective, still holds up um, even after so many other vampire stories have been written. I would also give a shout out to Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, uh, which is a, a, a classic. It is just an iconic classic in vampire literature. And he was... I believe one of the first, most vampire stories have like a vampire or two, but I Am Legend was, if I'm not mistaken, the first major work of, of literature to feature just a swarm of vampire, like a vampire epidemic. But yeah, the uh, that, that book itself, which is a very brief read, is a very effective and sort of potent read. But you know what? Honestly, uh, for me, Dracula itself, Bram Stoker's book itself, uh, has quite the creepiness to it. It's a bit, obviously this, uh, this book is, is very old. I'm actually embarrassingly remiss to remember exactly how old it was, but I know it's at least a couple hundred years old. And, uh, Dracula itself might be something different for readers going into it right now. Like if they were to pick up that book, uh, it's epistolary in a lot of places, which, you know, if listeners don't know what that word means, basically just means it's written in the style of a lot of letters and diaries. And so it's not very propulsive in its narrative, but there's some really effective moments in the novel Dracula that are very, very creepy. And that might be a, a, a decent segue into just a couple of bits of trivia about this film itself, about Dracula. Universal actually wanted, because it had not yet been done, Universal actually wanted to make a major screen adaptation of the novel itself. But as they were doing that and developing that, they realized the budget was going to inflate to an unsustainable amount. So instead, what they chose to do was to adapt a film version of the very successful play that had been running for a number of years. And you can, you can probably tell that the film itself in some ways kind of feels like a play. There's only a couple of different locations. A lot of times long drawn out scenes will happen within the same room. Um, so Universal was adapting that play, which was starring 
Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi had made the role of Dracula famous on the stage. Interesting. And was so, he was so personally invested in making sure that he was able to reprise the role for the film that he did two things. One, he uh, actually spoke with uh, the descendant, I believe it was the granddaughter of Bram Stoker, who uh, had the rights to Dracula. Um, a brief aside, listeners may be familiar with a 1922 film called Nosferatu, which was uh, known to be an adaptation of Dracula, but they couldn't use any of the names or, or places. They couldn't call it Dracula. They just basically made a vampire story that is the Dracula story, but uh, they didn't have the rights to it. So they just had to do their own thing that was very similar. So Universal wanted to straight up make Dracula. And they were the first to do it, largely thanks to Bela Lugosi, because Lugosi had gone to Bram Stoker's descendant and got the rights lowered from something like, uh, and again, we're talking 1930s dollar figures, but from something like $200,000 down to $60,000, which, you know, I don't have $60,000. So, um, so, so, um, so, yeah, so basically, um, he not only did that, but he cut his fee dramatically and uh, like I think down to a tenth of what uh, would have been I think he got something like $500 a week for every week of filming which even in depression days was uh, just an absurdly low amount for film so um, Lugosi was instrumental in Universal being able to successfully do this Universal wanted an actor by the name of John Carradine to play Dracula and because of Lugosi's involvement and because he had made the role famous on the stage Lugosi won himself the part in in this film adaptation and I think it was a good thing because even still after every vampire film all these different vampire stories I think culturally when people think of a vampire one of the first images that their mind is probably likely to conjure is Bela Lugosi in this film. It's just such an iconic representation, the voice, the uh, the presence, the costume. He, he just really personifies uh, and embodies what this character is in the minds of most people's imaginations. So, uh, well, let, let me, let me throw at you real quick. So one, I want to, I, I want to put a pin there because I do want to come back to, uh, your, your comment about the stage stuff, but your, your referencing Nosferatu made me recall what I would have said if it, if I thought about it of a movie that is my favorite vampire story. And that's Shadow of the Vampire, the Willem Dafoe. Oh, yes. That's yes. such a fantastic, very movie. good film. Um, very yeah, dark, very dark, film. darkly comic. Malkovich is in that. <clears throat> but I would be curious. Do you have a least favorite vampire story re movie? Let's do movie. Oh, yeah. You, you said it earlier. What? Twilight. Oh, <laughs> have you seen them? Uh, it? I, I, I saw, I saw it. Um, so I read the Twilight book and I saw the Twilight movie after which me and the franchise mutually parted ways yes. for irreconcilable differences. Yes. You, um, had a, you had a conscious uncoupling. Yes, I did. You know, I would say I find the movie, I, I, I think I've seen two of these. The Underworld. Those are terrible. Oh, yeah. I those, don't care for those. They have a no. big fandom, but but they've never but really they, won me over. Somehow, they keep making them. Yeah. I honestly think, I, and although I don't know how many in our particular circles are, are fans of those movies, but they, they, they seem to have a following. Because um, our fans are, our fans are cultural elites. They're smart <laughs> folks. They are. And they're discerning. Um, so coming, 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 coming back to your, um, your, your comment and, and we can, we can stay on the talking about Dracula track now, but 
it's fascinating to hear you talk. I didn't know any of that backstory about the stage version stuff. And mm. one of the things I wrote down as something I liked about the movie, and if you're if if it's if if you're at a place where we can go there, we can start talking about yeah, this. Yeah, let's stuff, do it. Yeah, um, please. Is it had a very theatrical quality to it. Uh, you know, long yeah. takes, big full, you know, sets. I don't know. It, it, it struck me as like, I want to get on that stage, you know, and hang out yeah, with oh, folks yeah. and play, uh, play Dracula. You know, so, so that was one of the things I really took away from it that was, uh, enjoyable to me. And, you know, again, it makes sense knowing the history with Lugosi, but, um, he, he, he really does just, if I can say it, he sinks his teeth into the role and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and just it's really kind of, he really owns it. Uh, I will say this is not a dislike of the movie as much as it is an unfortunate byproduct of 80 plus years of distance between it. It is very difficult to watch this movie and not have other cultural touch points. Yes, absolutely. Like it's hard to, it's hard to watch it on its own merit. It is difficult. Like I keep waiting for, um, Ed Wood to make a Bella Lugosi reference to show up and, (laughs) you know, just like, Oh, it'll be better next time, you know, or, or, Whatever, you know, it is, it right, is challenging, right. like, and because the style of filmmaking has changed so dramatically, right. there is, there is almost this self parodying element that, that, that we apply to it because we're like, wow, this is so heightened. It's so, you know, we, we live in a very naturalistic acting culture, you right. know, like, like right. what right. you see on screen is very natural. It's meant to be how an actual, but you know, that era, it is very, and especially if it's adapting a, th- a stage version, if it is big sets, if it is stage actors, it's much bigger. It's much broader. I love uh, on the on the liking things like this is not necessarily a thing to like about the movie, but I liked it on my on its own merit. His physical reactions are priceless. Oh, to, oh absolutely. To the to the mirror. And oh my to, God, the, the to the crosses, it is hysterical. And oh, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's this, it's this double-edged sword because you know they're not meaning it as humorous. You right, know? right. But it is interesting to watch. And like I was watching this movie thinking, would someone in 1931, is this a scary movie to them? You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's funny because I would have to imagine it would be, um, but you got to remember. I guess. Well, you got to remember at that point, and this is crazy to think about, at that point, Film as a marketable medium is, is, is really only about 30 or 40 years old. You know, like, like when you think about the fact that this was made in, in 31. I mean, this film is now 85 years old. Right. And it, it's, it, it is interesting to think that, okay, yes, certain, certain people would have probably been genuinely unsettled or unnerved by some of the things that they're, that they're seeing on screen. Um, I, you referenced that mirror moment. That's that moment is one of my it might be my favorite moment in the film the, the where he reacts to the mirror because Lugosi himself has such a you're, you're right that it could be viewed in a way and kind of be absurdly comical now with our lens you know our our 2017 lens but he I don't know the when I rewatched it every single time that I watch that film uh, I'm just I'm just struck by. Lugosi's presence in the movie and that mirror moment is is great because <laughs> I think he I, I think he just he just absolutely I keep resisting using your phrase of sinks his teeth in the role for a variety of reasons but he just has such 
a, a charisma to him in those moments that I find gravitas. Fun. Gravitas, yes. I like that uh I, I like that choice of word. And somebody else who I think almost steals the movie is his uh familiar uh in in vampire terms uh Renfield. Renfield yeah. which is played by uh an actor named Dwight Fry. I honestly think and this would be a like for me, and it would also be probably my only scary moments notes of the film. Renfield has just a, a creepy, creepy effect when that, that image where they look down in the boat and he's got the mad oh, eyes, yeah, like yeah. sitting, you know, staring up at it. That's great when he's crawling towards the body of the of the fainted maid, and uh, and and just Renfield himself, just really, he's pretty over the top as an actor. But I think in such a way that's that's compelling and not comical. Right. Um, I think often he's, uh, even though it is a very, very over-the-top performance, I think it's a, also a very effective one. And it's one of my favorite things about the film. Every time I rewatch it, I'm like, yes, I forget how great Dwight Fry is in this film. And, uh, you know, again, Lugosi himself and Dwight Fry in those roles, I think, really make the film. And I think still make it watchable because otherwise sure, sure. I don't know how interesting the film would be as a whole. I do think that the actor who plays Professor Von Helsing, I think uh, uh, Ed Edward Van Sloan, uh, I think he does a really good job in a sort of a an anchored performance, but it's unquestionably for me Lugosi and Fry as Dracula and Renfield. Well, and, and you know, I mean, Van Sloan, who clearly changed his name after playing Van Helsing so that he would have a van somewhere in there. But, you know, he, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't hold a candle to old Hugh Jackman. Uh, I'm making a joke. That's a terrible movie. Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing. Uh, yes, that is a, that is a terrible movie. I do not like that film at all. We're spending a lot of time on films I don't care for. I know, I know. There's so many of them though. Like there's so many bad <laughs> versions of these stories. I do love, and we can, we can kind of move on after this, but I do, I do love how like, you know, our modern ears hear the name Count Dracula in a context and it's like, run, run people, <laughs> flee, get away. But you know, right, like right. at the opera or whatever that event is that they show, that he shows up to and, and gosh, is it Seward who introduces him to the Harkers? Yes. Yeah. It's just like, oh, this is Count Dracula. Like, oh, hello. You know, I mean, it's so like, right. right. Welcome. And I'm glad. Oh, so you're a fan of opera. So they have that in Transylvania, huh? You know, it's like, so like, <laughs> uh, just, just, just straightforward, you know, he's just a count. He's got some, a little bit of affectation going on, but whatever, you know, right. He's part of the crew. I think you're tapping into something that I think is really interesting because not only you, you, you've mentioned already how there's some cultural touch points that you have to divorce yourself from to really appreciate what's happening in the film. And one of those things, which I don't think gets referenced very much, is the simple fact that Count Dracula is a vampire. We forget when we enter into this movie, um, or, or really any sort of Dracula adaptation, that these characters, we sometimes wonder, why are they not immediately put off by this? Well, they probably are a little bit, but their brains don't, in the narrative, don't immediately jump to, hmm, something seems off about this guy. Maybe right. he's a blood-sucking undead vampire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, right. you know, they, they would just notice, like, they, they have reactions to him. Like, um, like I remember you mentioned that opera moment. One line that I wrote down, which, you know, might come um, into play when we talk about themes, is he says to them, you know, to die, to be truly dead must be glorious. There are far worse things awaiting man than death. And they have a reaction that the rest of the people in the box have a reaction to that line. Like, wow, that is a really unnerving thing for somebody to say. <laughs> 
but definitely you know, not but, party conversation. No, no. But the only one. Oh, I like these hors d'oeuvres. There's worse <laughs> things in life than death. <laughs> well, well. And how about? I'm sure you heard it. How about let's let's give some props to one of the most iconic lines in all of vampire stories and all of uh, film history. Period. I never drink wine. <laughs> 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 yeah, that should have totally been a tip off to those people. Like, what is okay? What? Like, yeah, you know, water. So you're a water drinker. Yeah. Well, you didn't need to point that out. Like, we yeah. all drink water. We all like water. <laughs> you um, enjoy a good beer. <laughs> and then there. No, be- no, no, no. I don't drink wine. Yes, <laughs> yes. I understand. So I'm trying to. <laughs> can you help me out a little bit here, sir? I don't drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> They he's keep like trying to add he's like, to yeah, he's like winking <laughs> he's at not them. Having it. You know, he starts licking his <laughs> starts licking his teeth a little bit and they're like, I I don't get it. Well, <laughs> he's just an odd bird, that count. <laughs> oh man. He seems a little creepy. Um they said they're like For, oh man foreigners. <laughs> we, we, we should we should build a wall, but he's just gonna turn into a bat and fall. Oh over my gosh. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, you like how I did that? Yeah, I do like how you did that. I like how you compared our new president-elect, which uh, by the time listeners hear this, he will have been sworn in. Dear God, help us. But um, I know that uh, you're you're comparing him to uh, to Count Dracula, to the most famous undead <laughs> vampire in uh, in all of uh, film and literature history. Well, one thing that I wanted to, to do to kind of uh, more overtly transition us into theme, something that I've always found. What about some scary stuff? We didn't. I mean, I've got one. Oh, I, you, you oh, I mentioned Renfield. Uh, you did. Maybe I didn't. Maybe, yeah, maybe I didn't touch on it. Renfield is my scary moment. Like, okay. like a- anything Renfield does, uh, those are the scary moments in the film for me. Well, I've got just one. And I mean, like, I don't know how any Universal Monster movie is going to rival this. But what I wrote down was armadillos uh, yeah <laughs> why in the world i saw that and i was like what why yeah well i'm it, I, clearly i'm missing my the the history of transylvanian castles and the the wildlife that surrounds them but what a strange you gotta imagine on the day they were shooting that on the universal lot they were like do we have the wild wolves that we booked for the day like, no, one of them went rabid and bad things happened. We don't have the wolves. Oh, my God. What do we have? Mm, armadillos? Okay, let's do it. You know, like, like how <laughs> random and hysterical <laughs> is it to just... And it's more than one shot. Those armadillos yeah. show up oh, yeah. more than once. Like, oh, yeah. does the count just... There's evidently just, an armadillo infestation in <laughs> Count Dracula's <laughs> castle. Right. It it's not even me. rats. Like our, no. our, our armadillos, the rats of Transylvania, you know, like, yeah, basically just, you just, they just multiply, you know, you, you feed them after midnight, you get them wet, just armadillos everywhere. <laughs> it reminds me of that line from Ed Wood where, uh, he's like, yeah, there's something strange going on. We don't know what it is, but it's scaring the buffalo. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, like, I don't even mind that we're bringing up Ed Wood so much because if listeners have not seen that film, Ed Wood, of course, is about, uh, is a, is a biopic directed by Tim Burton about, you know, the life of much later filmmaker Ed Wood, but Ed Wood had a relationship with Bella, I say a relationship, a working relationship, um, with, uh, Bella Lugosi. And, you know, he sort of was responsible for reviving Bella Lugosi in the public eye because 
in this film, Lugosi immediately became typecast. So it was kind of a good thing and a bad thing for him that he got this role. It was a good thing in that he entered the cultural lexicon probably permanently as Count Dracula. I don't know that anybody else will rival his depiction of it, although I must give some props to the now deceased Christopher Lee, who made Dracula really iconic in the Hammer horror films. But uh, Lugosi was then sort of established as this this monster character and didn't get a lot of interesting work after that. If you've And listeners, if you've never seen Ed Wood, um, I, I think you would echo this. Oh, it's so much fun. Yeah, I, I recommend Ed Wood uh, with the highest praise, highest recommendation. All right, so let's, um, let's pull the string and get to some themes. Pull the string! <laughs> I think, so we obviously could spend an entire episode never referencing Dracula, but but having a conversation about vampires as metaphor, because vampires are, you know, these days, zombies get a lot of love. These days, zombies, you know, have a lot of presence in horror films. There's a new zombie film about every other week. And, you know, vampires are not as tapped into very frequently, partially, um, I think, because Stephanie Meyer half killed them with uh, with Twilight stuff, Twilight nonsense. But And let's be honest, it's tough to half kill something that's already undead. That's true. You know? So, one of the things that I have always thought about for myself as a, as a vampire, and I'd be curious to know your thoughts on this just, just briefly, I've always seen or imagined in my mind, although I don't know that anybody's ever really set out to make it this way, I think the vampire as a character, as a being, as a monster, is an interesting metaphor for addiction. And the idea that it's something that uh, you have this constant craving you're subject to it. It controls you in a way it has already sort of, sort of killed you or you're, you're not yourself anymore, but people are drawn to Dracula. He hypnotizes them and mesmerizes them. Although he only does that, I think, to, to two people in this film, but, uh, he, he mesmerizes them, draws them in. There's an attraction to it. But then once you sort of encounter it, then, um, it consumes you and it becomes this, this appetite that can never be satisfied. And uh, I've always thought it was interesting to think about vampires in light of uh, sort of addictive properties. Do you have any sort of uh, knee-jerk thoughts to that idea? I know I'm j- we didn't pre-brief that, so I'm just springing sure, it on sure. you in the moment. But. No, I, I do think there's some some validity to that. And it's interesting, you know, you said, and I don't disagree with you, that zombies are very much in the zeitgeist, if you will. But... I don't think, like I'm thinking of this, I mean, from the trailer, eminently forgettable, or the trailer at least, Dracula Untold. You know, I, I mm. don't think, I don't think there's too many years that pass between vampire stories, but I do wonder if the lack of them connecting is because of sort of what you're identifying, meaning we don't get it. In other words, like you're just interested in telling a cool vampire story, cool Dracula story, whereas maybe what you're describing gets to the heart of why this story might be compelling, period. Right, right. And and I'm, I'm trying to uh, build a mental wall, if you will, and, and not dive into some things I want to discuss next week um, for that particular film, though it does resonate a little bit with where you're going here. Yeah, I can see that. And and because it becomes this, this tension between a quote-unquote kind of cool character, and yet at the same time, if you can find any sort of narrative value to it, you have to acknowledge what you're describing. Like, like, Right, there is, right. there is, and, and, you know, the, the Lugosi Dracula, again, it kind of exists 
on a different kind of level. It's, it's a very heightened production. Um, and that's not a criticism. It just is. And so they're not as concerned with kind of the, the more raw, uh, you know, emotionally connective tissue that might compel viewers to stick with this story. Um, but I do find that an interesting, you know, theme to pull out of sort of the vampire motif period. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was, and, and, you know, one of the things that sort of stuck out to me about, about that notion is, uh, I think the vampire as a monster is my, is my favorite, is my favorite monster in all of sort of the, the, the lore of things. Uh, you know, obviously werewolves are very interesting monsters. Frankenstein's monster is really compelling. And, uh, you know, zombies, there's a number of things that are, that are worth talking about with each of these guys. But I think for me, um, there's so much going on with the vampires. Obviously, this film itself and many subsequent vampire films, although it is extremely present in the Hammer horror films, but vampires, their relationship with the cross and, and how the cross has a profound effect on them. Yeah. And what, and, and here's what it makes me think. I'll try to form these thoughts in a cohesive way so that I'm not rambling that you know you think about what does the cross symbolize well for the christian the cross symbolizes you know redemption that's that's a, a an element where christ used that cross as a means to redeem god and mankind and uh, reconcile them together but also what did jesus say to his disciples that you've got to take up your own cross so to a degree it means sort of dying to yourself it means sort of uh, a self-sacrifice. And one of the things I think is interesting is that vampires, you know, we, we joked earlier about that mirror scene, which is which might be my favorite moment in the movie, but vampires literally cannot see themselves. Hmm. They are unable to, to see themselves. And when you go into the metaphor behind that, that's, uh, that's fascinating to me, that they've now been consumed by this thing. They've lost the ability to manage themselves. They can't look at themselves. They can't control this craving. There are stories, some of them very interesting, about how vampires try to sort of manage the craving for blood if they don't want to to feast on humans. But particularly when you get into Dracula, I mean, Dracula is a malevolent being. He is not at all interested in the, uh, you know, he, he's not interested in sort of remaining human. He is a monster who embraces what he is. Um, he's lost sight of himself. He's, he's lost all, they, and, and again, they can't go into the sun. They can't step into the light. They, their, their power exists only in the darkness. So vampires, I think, are a profoundly rich metaphor for the ways that evil can consume us and can make us sort of lose ourselves and become slaves to our own desires, our own addictions, our own cravings. And so it almost, you know, we've joked about Twilight. Honestly, the more that I think about Dracula from 1931, the more I think about the Hammer horror films uh, and Christopher Lee's Dracula, it really makes me feel like the vampire as a character has been largely diluted in cultural mythology, that he's been, dare I say it, at the risk of, of, uh, of being too punny, defanged, that, that most of the bite has gone out of him. And I will say this, because I think this is worth, worth mentioning. One of the reasons I hate Twilight so much with such a fiery passion. Pe- there are some people who glom on to some things and, and, and I, I don't want to disrespect that if, it, if, if they have things that they like 
about that story, then that's fine. I disagree with them because they're wrong, but I don't want to disrespect <laughs> them. Um, <laughs> so you'll just dismiss them. So I'll just dismiss them. But, um, but here's what I will say. Like one of the things I hate about that is because it turns a monster and makes it appealing and, and, and it completely, you know, the sun makes them shine as opposed to, you know, dissolving them or destroying them. So I think it, literally undermines the metaphor. It literally takes away the elements of the metaphor that I think make the vampire work as a monster, and it just casts them all aside. And that's something that I think the reason I keep coming back to these vampire stories, and it's it's true in um, in Salem's Lot, that, uh, you know, th- th- that those vampires are genuinely very frightening, very scary. They are... They are genuine monsters, and that's what I find so compelling about them. And uh, and so yeah, it makes me sad that they've kind of been diluted. Well, two, two, yes, and I think I think um, the uh, if I can bloodlessness you sense of you know interpretations of them currently again it's it's I think you identified something real real potent there in terms of what is the hook. What is the hook with the vampire story? It is that compulsion. It is that addictive quality. Whereas at least it feels to me, and this is a very general reading of a lot of what exists pop culture wise of this story is, well, the vampire is cool. So let's keep him cool. It's really, you know, it's sexy. It's, it's, you know, and it's like, uh, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I guess, I guess, you know, that is a, a certain interpretation, but, uh, does it really, have much narrative gravity to it. Probably not. Right. Right. But even, even to sort of, you know, expound a little further on what I think you probably are saying, you know, we, we addressed in gremlins, uh, so many things, but, um, <laughs> how the thematic conversation was indicating, you know, yes, in the context of the movie, um, these gremlins can't revert to Mogwai. And in the context of these vampire stories or in Dracula, at least, since we're using that as our touch point here, you know, even if he wanted to, the character of Count Dracula, um, cannot be unvampired. Right. But right. to your point about addiction and about, you know, I, I, I thought this was where you were going to go, uh, a minute ago, but, you know, you talked about the cross's impact on them. And I think that's a really valuable conversation point that may kind of wind us towards a conclusion here. But you, you, you touched on what does the cross represent? And, and, you know, yes, it is redemption. You know, yes, it is kind of a hopeful what what we sort of pin our hopes to uh, as as believers, but but kind of more than that, in a, in a real like elemental way, it's it's purity, it's light, mm-hmm. and I think there's something fascinating that happens, you know, in this in this addiction conversation. You know, e- even take sort of the 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 Judeo Christian element out of it, though I do think a spiritual component remains. Is you know someone who is riven with addiction who is beset and and just owned by an addiction they are you know the, the this cross is an intervention you know it it is yeah yeah it is a forceful not let me be careful here i don't think god is coercive and i don't think right, that that right. there's a way in which he's going to twist your arm into faith in him but there is a way in which these two things cannot coexist, mm-hmm. at least in that level of profundity, if you will. Like addiction is enslavement to something else. Mm. Yeah. You know? And and that's yeah. why I think Paul uses that language a lot, not addiction, but you're gonna be a slave to something. You mm-hmm. it's just it is it is our in our nature to to enslave ourselves to a thing. 
Now, the thing may be harmless in a certain level, like coffee. The thing may be eminently and utterly self-destructive, like heroin. You know, like right, but you right. you are going to, in some fashion, have little idols in your life and sometimes big idols. And the bigger mm-hmm. the idol that is not faithful living, the bigger the idol that is not belief in, you know, Yahweh, if you will, like the more those two things are going to conflict with each other when they come in contact. Right. Right. And, and I think there's a really powerful, you know, sort of dialogue that's happening there of, you know, yes, again, in the context of this movie, Dracula is not going to be unvampired, but in the context of real people walking around in life, like, I mean, you hear these stories of people who succumb to addiction and lose everything, you know, lose right. family, lose right. money, lose home, lose shelter. And when confronted with that light, of faith and of grace have this dramatic change and, 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 and experience some freedom from that addiction. I don't know. That's a really powerful, right. I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you glommed onto that because I watched Dracula and I was like, yeah, I'm not sure what I got coming out of this, you know, <laughs> other than some fun, some fun conversation points. But I do think that's a valuable uh, dialogue there. Yeah. And, uh, something, you know, uh, uh, as we sort of near the tarmac for a conclusion on this, on this conversation, uh, something that I think, th- so the scripture verse that I wanted to bring in into this conversation fits right into, I think fits right into what we're talking about. We're talking about the nature of addiction. There's this uh, sort of quality where it will consume so much of who you are and in the really intense and uh, overpowering elements, uh, c- you can lose everything. You can lose family, friends, home, life, uh, lose yourself. And, uh, the scripture verse, though it is commonly quoted, it's, it's from the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, Matthew chapter six, verse 13 simply says, and it's part of the Lord's prayer and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And it's interesting because to me, I think about this and what we've been saying about specifically the vampire in general, he, he is evil. He, she, whoever it is, they, they are, they are evil beings. They are monsters. And I think it is important uh, when you look at something like someone who is struggling with an addiction, I think it is important that we not see them as, okay, I'll say it this way. In the film, you have Dracula, who is who's gone. He's completely a, a monstrous being, but then he is seducing, uh, pr- particularly Mina Harker, to become one as well. And is trying to make her one as well. And what is the, the, the mission of Harker and Van Helsing and the people who are trying to save her? They don't see her as evil, even though she is becoming this, this vampire thing looks very similar. They don't see her as evil. They want and seek and fight to free her from that. And I think it can be really easy in the cultural sort of ethos to look at people who struggle with an addiction as if they are the problem and look at people who struggle with addiction as if uh, they have no value other than to simply be written off or sim- simply be cast aside. And I think the people who work in, in the rehab facilities, the people who do the hard work of making sure that these people become whole and get free from this thing which has imprisoned them, I cannot say it more bluntly than I say that I, I believe that to be godly work, um, whether or yes. not they are religiously affiliated or not. I believe that is godly work to sort of yes. attack the things that are um, that are causing these people 
such harm and causing these people to to lose their quality of life in a substantial way. And I think it's important that we not look at someone who may be struggling with an addiction and and write them off as if they are uh, dismissible in general, but to see it uh, again in this sort of vampiric context that no, what what they're struggling with is what we need to combat. What what they are, what has hold of them is what needs to be fought and confronted. And more so than that, in almost every case, although I know some people have some very hard roads, but in almost every case, there there is a path back. There's a there's a path home. There's a path right. towards wholeness. Yes. And and I think that's I think it's important to recognize that, to speak that out and to acknowledge that and accept that and adopt that. I say that scripture verse, you know, now uh, over this entire subject, you know, lead us not into temptation. Don't let us be drawn into addiction. Deliver us. Well, and you're raising a really interesting thought that, again, you know, in, in, in the interest of trying to, to get somewhere close to landing here. You know, it's fascinating. You, you know, I, I know you didn't necessarily mean this to be like a sociological uh, point, but isn't it interesting that people who are dismissive, like a, a common vernacular you hear when it comes to dismissing people in addiction and, and struggling with that, like, like we use the language of, of blood sucking or, or, you know, mm. you know what I mean? Like you, you use that language yeah. in dismissing those people, but though what's fascinating is, and, and I, I believe firmly in what you said that, you know, you, you, scripture references, Jesus himself references, whatever you do to the least of these you do for me. Like if someone is in the, that field and, you know, take this for how you will receive this as from Nathan, but like, even if they aren't s specifically a quote unquote Christian, like, and they are doing the work of this, like they are doing the Lord's work. Like this yeah, is, yeah. you know, this is, this is faithfulness is the capacity to, on a micro level, take an individual and try to help them rebuild their life from something yeah. like addiction. But what's fascinating is the reverse happens too. Like if you are one of those people who become so dismissive, like you become the vampire. You are the one preying on their weakness. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. I don't know. It's just a fascinating, who knew? Vampires. <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a sort of a compelling place to, to sort of land. It, it is imperative that we, that we be about the father's business, whether or not we would directly associate ourselves with that faith or not. And, and I think that, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to explore in vampire stories. This will not be the final conversation we have about vampires, even this month. In fact, uh, next week, we are going to be addressing the companion film, which, you know, we, we've sort of uh, lobbed off on saying specifically what follows next week. But I, I think I'm going to do that here because since it is a companion film to Dracula, next week, we're going to be talking about 2010's film uh, by Matt Reeves called Let Me In. Um, and uh, we'll have a variety of different things to say about that. But, um, I think in general, this, the, the, the vampire as a monster is definitely worth sort of a reassessment, a reexamination in, uh, in not only from a faith perspective, but just from a cultural narrative perspective. And I think we've, uh, maybe 
had an opportunity to do that now, and we would love to invite you, the listeners, unless, Nathan, you had something else that you wanted specifically to, to say, we'd like to invite you, the listeners, to... Uh, to go ahead and uh, and reach out to us and continue this conversation because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And uh, you can reach out to us in a variety of ways. You can uh, follow us on Twitter. Nathan, uh, as always, what is our Twitter handle? It is at the fear of God. And uh, you can also like us on Facebook. That's uh, uh, There's a link to that through Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides at the fear of God? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at... At the Nathan Rouse. And uh, you can also email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. You can go to morethanonelesson.com and leave a comment on the actual post for this episode. Um, and uh, you could also go to iTunes if you're liking this uh, this conversation and the kind of conversations that we have. You could leave us a review there. We'd greatly, greatly appreciate that. Um, but in general, we want to hear your thoughts on this, on uh, perhaps if you have some specific thoughts about 1931's Dracula or um, the Universal Monsters as a whole, or specifically if you have some thoughts about vampires and some of the things that we've been touchstoning with in that conversation. We would absolutely love to hear from you. So join us next week when we continue the vampire conversation with our companion film to Dracula, Let Me In. And until that time, Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, man. I appreciate it. Likewise, I now uh, go to retire into the soil of my homeland. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we'll see you next week, everybody. Have a good one. Later. Later.